Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Michael DiMercurio, and he is a best-selling author. He's a veteran of the U.S. Navy Submarine Force. He's also a near-death experiencer, and I'm so happy to have him on my show. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Leslie. It's good to be here. I tell you, it is so wonderful to talk to you. You had one of the most incredible near-death experiences I've ever heard. And I found you on the Jeff Mara show. I got to give him some credit. So can you kind of go into what happened? And then I'm just going to keep interjecting with you while you're talking. Well, it's interesting you thought it was interesting because in my NDE, I didn't go all the way to the other side. I, I didn't see the mountains or the prairies or the flowers yeah. or the lakes or, you know, a gathering of relatives. I had a drowning incident in a Navy scuba school where they anticipate that happening. They have two ambulances standing by for potential drowning victims. It happened to me, and instead of getting me out of the pool, my diver buddy was a uh, Marine Corps deepwater swim instructor, and he kept fighting off the uh, scuba instructors who were trying to get me out of the pool. And he was insisting that he was going to give me underwater CPR, and he had his regulator in my mouth trying to bring me back. And this went on for a long time while they were trying to fight the guy. And he was a physical phenomenon. So, you know, they were having a crisis down there because they thought they were going to lose me because this guy just would not give up. I was witnessing this from about 10 feet away. Oh, wow. And at, at first, I was very interested in what was going on. I mean, seeing yourself starting to die is kind of an interesting thing at first. Oh, I'm sure. But believe it or not, I got bored of it after a couple of minutes. <laughs> oh, and <God. laughs> I described dying as very much like leaving a hotel room. You, you look around and make sure you didn't leave anything behind. And by the time the door shuts behind you, you never really think about it again. It was just a vehicle to get you from point A to point B. It's not you. Right. So my attention was drawn to what looked like a 30-foot wide horn of plenty. It was black. It was made up of what seemed like thunderclouds, mm. you know, little puffy cotton balls, but they were black. But they were lighting up from the inside with lightning, kind of like if you've ever flown over a thunderstorm. You see something like that. Well, I tell you, it's funny because I remember when you were talking on Jeff's podcast, you said, you know, I was thinking, why aren't they helping him get to, you know, the surface? And you said, hey, they'd flunk if anybody had to, first of all, have their air pulled out of them like he was doing for you or they came to the surface. So was that one reason why he kept you underwater? Well, one reason was if you had to go to the surface of the pool to take a breath, you flunked a class that you just invested four weeks of 13-mile right. runs and combat dives and all kinds of he stuff. Was dedicated. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was a point of pride to the guy that he was not going to lose me, even though I was being a slug. Yeah. So, so you saw this kind of like thundercloudy kind of tunnel. So what happened after that? Well, I was pulled into it, and it really felt like I was completely stationary, and the tunnel was moving around me. If you've ever been on an electric train where it starts off and it's really, really smooth, mm -hmm. and it looks like the scenery is just starting itself to move itself, and you're stationary, it felt like that. So I was gliding through this, this circular tunnel full of these thunderclouds for a long time. And by long, I mean, it seemed like it was 40 minutes or longer. Yeah. And the, the end of the tunnel where the pool was had disappeared. It had gone around a bend. So there was really no light coming from where I started. So I'm just existing in this tunnel that by, you know, my eyes seemed to extend 
infinitely in both directions. Wow. But you weren't afraid. That was another thing. You said you kind of had this sense of calm, like, you know, you weren't freaking out. You kind of were, it was interesting to watch your body, somebody trying to revive it, but then you kind of lost interest, went further into the tunnel. That hole that you came into the tunnel kind of faded and you still felt okay. You didn't feel frightened at all. Well, the emotional effects started almost immediately after I was out of my body. My mm. my whole emotional structure seemed to change. Mm. When I was alive in the pool, uh, even though I'm concentrating on that test, you know, there's 10 things in the background of your mind you're thinking about. I've got to make my mortgage payment. Mm. I've got to make a car payment. Uh, I'm doing something on Saturday. I forgot to call my parents last weekend, right. you know, yeah. and as soon as I was out of my body, that whole to-do list just dissolved. It vanished like it had never been there. And I felt this this really deep sense of calm. But beyond that, it was a sense of knowing. It was It was like having wisdom and it didn't feel like something changed. It just felt like I had already had it and I was just remembering. Did it feel like a sense of, oh, I've been here before. This feels familiar to me. It did. And it was very much like I went from a smaller abbreviated existence back to my normal expanded existence. Oh. It's hard to describe, but if you've ever woken up with your face on the wooden floor from a night of carousing, yeah. <laughs> first right. open your eyes. You're not fully yourself. You're not fully conscious. You're you're only thinking about getting a glass of water, going to the bathroom, and how bad you feel. You're you're a fraction of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then 24 hours later, you're your complete self. So it's right. very much like waking up and then returning to mm-hmm. uh, the parts of me that had been missing before. Wow. And I remember you telling Jeff, now I don't know if you retained any of this information, that you kind of the universe made sense all of a sudden to you. I don't know if you retained any of that. Uh, What was interesting was that there's a hundred eternal questions that linger on everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the purpose of life? Why do we die? What happens after we die? Is love real? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. All those questions were so answered that I didn't even need to think about the questions. I, I just knew all that already. So was it more of a feeling and a knowledge through the feeling as opposed to, well, this is the answer for that and this is the answer? It wasn't like chronological, just all of a sudden the flood of knowledge maybe, right? Right, but it was. It felt like old knowledge rather than new. When you oh. learn something new and you're entranced with it, it's kind of almost like a mental toy. You're You're interested in it, you're playing around with it, you're looking it over. Old knowledge is not so much taken for granted, but you're just so used to it yeah. that it doesn't spur any additional curiosity. Right. Now, you said you were greeted by some beings. So can you tell me about those people? So I'm an hour into this journey down the tunnel, mm-hmm. enjoying that feeling of wisdom and not really worrying about what was happening. I was just observing it calmly, quietly. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the movement stopped, and I came to a part of the tunnel that maybe was a little bit wider than where I'd been, but not that much. Mm-hmm. And I started to sense a conversation on the other side of the tunnel wall, and uh, I didn't understand what the conversation was or what the words were. It wasn't language. It was more directed thoughts. Wow. But I was very much reminded of being six years old and packed into the back seat of my parents' sedan on a drive from their friends after a night of playing bridge back to our house. And I could hear my parents talking about things or discussing how the game went. And I didn't know what any of those words meant, but I could tell by the tone of voice whether that hand had gone well or if my mom were mad at my dad because he messed up on a bid. 
Yeah. Great analogy, though. These are all such great analogies to explain the feelings you were having. So, so they were just kind of discussing you. Is that kind of what they were doing? Well, and just like in the back seat of that sedan, the voices would change if they were talking about me. Right. And I became sensitive to that as a child. And so I became sensitive to it here because that was the whole discussion. I was the subject of a debate. And as time went on, I started to understand the gist of the conversation. I could make out maybe seven individual voices one of them was very deep and commanding and, and dominant and a very male spirit. Mm. The other half dozen were more nurturing, feminine, loving, more sweet, softer spoken spirits. And they were trying to convince the one dominant one that I needed to leave behind life and go to the other end of the tunnel to what they called the world. Mm. And I was initially confused by that because I yeah. thought that I... Wasn't I just in the world? Yeah, if that's the not world. the world, well, what was it? Yeah. Uh, did they explain that to you ever? Or did you just kind of, that just kind of went away? That was left for me to try to figure out oh. afterwards. But I've heard other people describe that that's the real life that we're living. And what, what we're doing here is sort of a video game, if, if you will. I know. And that's what I want to talk to you about. But let's keep talking about this first. So, so they're talking and discussing you and you're just kind of watching them and you're like, okay, what did I leave the world? Am I here? You're confused. And they probably know telepathy wise that you're a little confused. So were they able to talk to you or what happened then? No, and I don't think they were listening to my thoughts. I had the impression that I had some thought privacy, but oh. I was voting with the female spirits. So I wanted to get out of there. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the life on earth, it's very difficult existence, yeah. no matter who you are. Right. And I was tired from it. And I wanted to go to this real world where I sensed there were some, you know, magnificent things waiting for me. Yeah. But this dominating spirit said that it was a matter of courage and uh-huh. that I needed to find what courage I was given for this life and proceed on. And then the female spirits were saying, no, it's going to be too hard a life. It's going to be very crushing for them. And the male spirit decided to display a projection of why I needed to go back to Earth because of what I was going to do in my life and that the things that I would do in my life would touch a lot of people and that that interaction needed to happen because a lot of people needed to hear what I had to say. Wow. Um, Wow. I, I don't remember any of that projection. I just remember sort of the core issue of it. Mm-hmm. But later, when I became an author, it got clear to me maybe what he was saying was that one of my core purposes is, is to write novels and to just put my philosophy on the page and expose that to other people. And by doing that, I can teach people or, or advance them in their spiritual growth. Wow. Okay, so you have those kinds of things in your books then, right? I do. In fact, the latest one, Dark Transit, has entire sections devoted to philosophy. (laughs) You know, the the action is interrupted right before a battle where everybody's waiting for the word to go out an airlock and they're just sitting there and and they're, you know, shooting the bull about what what does life really mean and is this a simulation? Wow. Okay. And that's, that's where I want to go. Okay. Well, so you're there. So do you come right back? How does that happen? Well, after this little movie that the dominating spirit displayed, the female spirit's decided that they were in agreement with him, and I heard the thought, agreed, and then I started blasting back through the tunnel in the direction I came Mm. at what seemed supersonic speed. It took about three seconds to get back to the pool. Oh, wow. 
I'm 10 feet away from my body watching the instructors fighting with this dive buddy of mine. And all of a sudden I'm slammed into my body mm-hmm. and I open my eyes and this Marine is purple from lack of air. I pulled out my regulator, which was his regulator. He'd given it to me. I put it in his mouth so that he could recover. Mm-hmm. And I watched as all the instructors saw that I was back and they backed off again. But I could tell that they were really, really scared. Oh, All wow. they were thinking about was that they were going to get court-martialed for, for this whole thing, and it was a death that shouldn't have happened. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the good thing is you did come back, so you're there trying to help him, even though you're the one that ended up dying. And you guys have a term for this um, in your little Navy group. What is it called? Well, so many people had drowned during these exercises and been revived that their term for it was seeing God. Mm. So they made me stand on the pool deck, looking into the middle distance. They're shining flashlights in my eyes. They're taking my pulse. They're trying to see if I'm brain damaged. They were asking me questions. What year is it? Who's the president? Uh, One point, the guy backed up and said, did you see God? And I briefly described what happened. And it really frightened the man. I don't know why. I, I did not think it was frightening, but he thought that was very different from any experience he'd heard before. And he thought that there was something wrong in my life that I needed to change. Yeah, it's it's perfectly fine if you have a near death and you see God. But um, if you have a group of people telling you, no, you need to change the world and tell people what's going on. And and this this is a great place and you have things to look forward to. That's not good. I don't understand how that's not good. He thought it was like me being sent to a celestial principal's office. So I better straighten out and fly right. And you know, Michael, I know that um, on Jeff Mars podcast, you said that uh, you were kind of religious before all this happened. So how did that affect your spirituality? I was deeply religious before all this happened. After this experience, I realized that what religion expressed and what was real for me were two different things. Mm-hmm. I've read that that some people who are devout really do see confirmation of my beliefs. But for me, it was not like that. So I realized that there's more to this than, you know, the dogma of organized religion can really cope with. So for me... I was not religious anymore. I was more spiritual, right. but less religious. You know, and I understand that because I'm kind of the same way. I'm all about God, and I, I believe that Jesus walked the earth. But um, as far as religion and organized religion, um, they all think theirs is right and everybody else is wrong. So I may leave this out. But uh, so, and you had to be careful with that because, you know, you're going to offend people and you're going to, some people are going to agree with you. So you just try to stay away from it. But it, it did affect you. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Now, before we started recording, I asked you, did you gain abilities? And you said, yeah, let's talk about that. So tell me about that. I had never been very good at reading people before. People were a complete closed book mystery to me. Mm -hmm. After that, I became much more sensitive to what people were thinking and feeling without having to to talk it through. And particularly in in one-on-one conversations Mm -hmm. where there's nothing but a table Uh, a couple of beers and the other person. And my example is I was on a first date with a woman who I didn't know anything about, except we traded a couple of messages. And she sat down across the table from me and we'd ordered drinks and the drinks came. And I saw this dark shape behind her. And I said aloud to her, there's something wrong about you and your father. Oh my gosh. 
and it came out of my mouth without me consciously thinking about it. It's one of those things that feels alien. And her jaw dropped, and she looked at me and said, "What? Why did you say it like that? You know, what are you thinking?" And I just repeated. I said, "There's something wrong about you and your father." And she started crying when she recovered a little bit. She told me the story that she had been raped by her father from when she was 11 until she left the house um, oh. to get out of there. She walked away from some scholarships just to enlist in the Coast Guard. Oh, my gosh. She said to me, my mother doesn't know. My sister doesn't know. My ex-husband doesn't know. How do you know? Wow. And what did you, I mean, what did you say? I mean, did you, did you tell her about your near death or did you just say, I don't know, it was a, I mean, what do you, how do you explain that away? I don't remember what I told her. I do remember that she had confessed to me that every relationship she had would get to the point that the guy would tell her that he was in love with her. And then she'd go to the bathroom and and vomit and then terminate the relationship. And I Mm. said, that's because all the time you were dealing with your father, he was telling you he loved you. So when you hear those words, you're brought right back to them. So I, I said, if you want to try something, your next relationship that's significant to you, tell the guy all that happened and and ask him never to say the words i love you just tell him to show it she was married a year later oh wow and i met her and her husband and she thanked me for the advice and said that it led to her getting in a new chapter in her life wow now let me ask you this that's amazing by the way do you think that was your higher self complete self whatever on the other side kind of channeling you and saying hey uh maybe you should tell her this i mean you already didn't realize you said those words to her all of a sudden just kind of came out do you think you got a little help from the other side doing that well it sure wasn't me i do know that (laughs) so whether it was god or or my complete self i i really can't testify yeah yeah. i do think we get messages from you know like i said source god or you know the guides or angels whoever are around us you know everybody has their own belief system on those kinds of things but you know you certainly uh, somebody was helping you and somebody had your back and you know what you helped her and maybe that's another reason you came it may have been just that that purpose right there it may just been for you to save her situation. And then well, you a lot of unexplained things that tend to happen. And I don't know if they happen to everybody or just to me, but I was in my muscle car, you know, blasting through a two lane blacktop in Vermont. Wow. And as I was coming around a blind curve, the thought just occurred in my head about a deer in the road. Mm. I, I, I saw it and I hit the brakes as I was coming around the curve and there it was. Wow. See, there you go. There's a little bit of that psychic ability, you know, just a tiny bit of the future. There's the deer, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was very fortunate. Wow. Um, So let me ask you this. So you gained a bit. What kind of abilities do you think it was like a, just a a medium kind of ship thing? You saw her dad or a dark figure behind her. What do you think the ability is? I think it's mostly going into somebody else's mind and connecting to it, but there's some, very weak clairvoyance. Uh, I was telling somebody that on the morning of September 11, I was out of my mind. And I told my then wife that it was 9-11 and a horrible emergency was going to happen that oh day. And she told me to stay home. And I said, you know, I, I can't call in sick back in the day when you showed up in the office five days a week in a suit and tie. Right. Yeah. To, you know, tell my boss that, you know, I, I, somebody walked on my grave. <laughs> no, yeah. were, were you in New York at the time? Well, I worked in North Jersey, so not oh. too far, but oh, wow. not in the city itself. And that was what I told my then wife that 
you know, whatever's going to happen is not going to get to me out in the countryside. So don't worry about it. Well, there's your prediction. I mean, wow. And that might even be something else. I don't know if you've been able to predict some of the things that's gone on lately, or is it just kind of come and go? How does that work? Uh, Not really. Uh, I've been surprised by a lot of things. So, (laughs) um, you know, whether good or bad, but that was the one example of of the more clairvoyant feeling. Sure. So when you were talking to Jeff, you were talking about a simulation and maybe we're avatars and we, we maybe decide what life we're going to have and, you know, all the things around us. So in, sometimes the math works and sometimes it doesn't. I don't even know how to start this conversation off. So maybe you can help me out here. The uh, interest for me came from being aware of what some people were saying about this subject, there's a book called The Holographic Universe. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of information floating around out there on YouTube. I think that the one thing that convinced me more than anything else was what quantum scientists were discovering. Mm-hmm. And in their testing of the fabric of reality, they, they keep finding that reality is not as real as you might think it is. It is very subjective, and it can be two things at once or neither. Mm -hmm. Uh, They even speak about reality is rendered to the observer. So if there's no observer, there's no universe there. But if you look at it, it gets rendered, and it becomes manifest. So video gamers describe this. They'll be in a video game, say they're playing a war game, Mm -hmm. and they'll see a, a cabin or a house. And they'll open the door and it'll take a second for the computer to realize they're going in and, oh, I better render the inside now. Right. So the computer then, you know, makes all the images that correspond to being inside that house. And that quantum physicists think that a lot of the same thing is going on in our reality. The other thing that is interesting is as they explore subatomic particles, the quarks that make up the known universe, there's so many things about that are they're odd. And if they get down to the most microscopic level of reality, some quantum physicists call it the digital theory that at their very core, subatomic particles may be made up of ones and zeros. If that's the case, then all this is is a digital rendering, which means it's a big computer program. Which is kind of scary to think about because, you, you know, we're so immersed in this life. You know what I'm saying? And then, but then when you said, when I went at least to the other side or wherever you did go, um, you said that felt more real than this life ever had to you. And that they called the other side the world. Yes. Or, like the real world so this would be a digital simulation that you're in and can interact with and can make decisions that have consequences and you feel those consequences so emotionally it's real but if you touch it and grab it you're grabbing a rendering i think you made something similar to when you're playing a game all day you're immersed and you're doing this for however many hours then you you feel like okay i'm hungry i'm going to stop i'm going to go eat or whatever you go outside and all of a sudden you're in the real world, and that was just a just a game. It's kind of like that, right? Exactly. I describe it as if you're in a dark movie theater in the summertime, mm-hmm. and you're watching the movie, and you're all immersed in it, and then when it ends, you walk out into the bright sunshine. It's a little disorienting. Yeah, it really is. That's fascinating to me. So, And, you know, I think you said something about Elon Musk said something like this too, right? Elon does believe that what we're living in is a simulation and it comes from some, some mathematical calculations about probabilities of the base universe creating a simulation. And in that simulation, those people creating a simulation 
and on and on and on. You could you could have a thousand sub levels. And because there's so many levels of that digital simulation in reality, that because of those numbers, the probability of this being the base reality is low. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, now we're getting so deep and I'm not good at math. So <laughs> yeah, my husband's a CPA. So you would think, you know, I just like, honey, you just do all the, you do all that stuff. You look pretty doing that. I'll do this part, but he's so not into this. So it's okay. <laughs> but you know, it's so crazy to me because you know, we're in these meat suits. I hate to say that. That's just the way it is. But it's true because I've heard other people say, you know, when I was there and I went back, I couldn't understand how my soul could fit inside that tiny little body. Oh, yeah. That's very interesting. But right now they feel like our consciousness resides in the cloud rather than in this three pounds of meat we call a brain. Well, and, and, but that would make sense why maybe your other self, your higher self, complete self would be the steering person, the person, you know, with the game controller uh, steering your every move like a Sims game or something. Um, I mean, I, I get that. It makes sense. Do I know if it's real? I don't think any of us do. It's just a theory. Too bad you couldn't, because um, when you said you understood everything in the universe and you came back and you didn't really retain a lot of it, too bad you couldn't do that. But that would make it too easy for you, I think, or maybe too hard. I don't know. I think that would be a cheat code. It would violate the purpose of being here. Okay, that makes sense. So what did you do? No, I didn't even ask. Michael, do you have children? I do. I have uh, an older son, a middle child daughter, and a younger daughter. Okay, so... Have you discussed any of this with them? Have they asked about this? I sent them the Jeff Mara podcast, but, you know, the older children think I'm crazy and I don't think they look at it. <laughs> oh, honey. Well, because I didn't, you, you were talking about, you were kind of religious before, so I'm assuming, and maybe that's not good to do, I would think that maybe they were probably brought up the way that you were brought up, so I didn't know if this kind of went against how they felt. Maybe that's what it is? Well, I think they were more influenced by their mothers when it came to... uh you know, religious upbringing, but, you know, they're used to me being sort of outside the box. So they just roll their eyes and say, hey, that's just dad being dad. <laughs> and see, I see you in a whole different way. You're so analytical and so not woo to me um, that I see a whole different side of you because you're only my second male NDE or most of the people that I have are women. And we're always a little bit more open box about this kind of stuff. You know, um, it just seems like, I don't hear much about men having these experiences, although they do. So when I have you guys on, it's so neat to get this whole different perspective. So would you write your books? Did you incorporate any of the experience you had, like with those beings in your book, you know, how they experienced it? Sometimes I had a uh, book called Emergency Deep where their main character died. Mm -hmm. And he can't really tell whether it's a fever dream or if it's real, but he was sort of spirit and flew out over the ocean and then came back to his house and he was visiting his house the day before his funeral Oh wow! and taking all that in and then being told that he had to go back. And then he wakes up in the bathroom and everybody in the house thinks he's dead and he struggles to his feet and comes back downstairs and starts cooking breakfast. He was a cancer survivor with stem cell therapy that, that revived him. But he had a super shot of chemo that was sort of their last resort. And they said it was either going to kill him or it was going to cure him. So he opted to do that. And everybody thought that he had died. And so he's cooking eggs and bacon. <laughs> and everybody coming down is like, what is going on? Right. You know? And I know most people that I talk to that have had near-death experiences, every single one of them don't want to come back. 
I mean, and they all have that one core feeling. It's love. You have this overwhelming feeling of love and calm. And I don't want to go back. This feels more real. And that's truly how you felt, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I've heard all the descriptions of the, the feeling of love. That wasn't so much my experience. Mm-hmm. It was it was more just this analytical wisdom, right. this really deep understanding of everything. And I wanted to cling to that because I, I loved knowing things. Right. And I didn't want to come back, not only because it's really hard and very emotional and tough and sad sometimes. Right. But because I would be leaving behind a lot of that knowledge and wisdom, it's sort of like the book Flowers for Algernon or the movie Charlie, where there's a guy who's mentally disabled and they decide to give him this experimental drug and it becomes a genius. But then the drug wears off slowly and he's returning to being, you know, a moron again. And, you know, it's very emotional as he realizes that he's getting dumber every day. I didn't want to come back because I, I realized that I was going to be dumb again. Well, and I don't, I don't know if that's the right term. It's all of a sudden you just had that knowledge in your head. And I think that was really fun to have, to have that knowledge that you never experienced and never had before. And clinging onto that sounds like it's your, kind of your love language of knowledge. You wanted to have that because when you said, I got bored at looking at my body, I get it because another near-death experiencer I I interviewed, she was in a car accident and she left her body. And she said, the only way I can explain it is, you know how like you've been outside in the garden and you've been working and you're sweating and you're disgusting and you go take a shower and you peel off all those gross, dirty clothes. The last thing you want to do is put those clothes back on. And that's how she felt about her body. That's a good description. Yeah. And I was just like blown away. So it's kind of like how you felt about the hotel room or uh, airplane seat. You kind of look back, you make sure you have your phone. You never think about that airplane seat or that hotel room again. And that's still that core you wanted to stay. Did you did you have any depression when you came back? Some people experienced that as well. No, I was mostly trying to make sense of it all and then trying to deal with these sort of psychic gifts. Yes. that were suddenly there and had not been before. Right. Are you still trying to do, I mean, I don't even know how long ago this was. How long ago was this? Uh, the drowning happened in 81. Oh, wow. Okay. It's been years. Okay. Now, do you feel like you have control over your abilities now, or do you kind of push them away? How do you, how do you handle those? No, they're out of control. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's really no getting a grip on them. They, they tend to do what they want. Well, I mean, is it because you are not wanting to maybe evolve them? Is it something that's, frightening to you or is it just ah, they come and go I don't really care no it's more like I feel a prohibition like I'm really not supposed to have that ability Mm. and if I mess around with it too much somebody will wake up and realize hey he brought back something he wasn't supposed to have let's take it away from him oh I don't think that's the case though I really don't I don't most people that come back I don't know if you know this you might know this because you know a lot about NDEs probably way more than me most people who had abilities before come back stronger with abilities and most people that come back gain them. And I don't think that was an accident, Michael. Well, and remember that in my experience here, I I keep going back to that. I'm supposed to experience mortal life on earth with all its ups and downs and, you know, a lot of downs and that I'm really, you know, if I use the cheat code too much, then I haven't really won. Right. Well, but I think you're limiting yourself in that because I think if you just evolved your abilities, I think it could really help you. You've already channeled 
11 books using your abilities. I mean, you're like, I don't even know where this stuff came from. You ended a book and you didn't know how it was going to end. And all of a sudden you had, I think you said four days to get it done. Your publisher said, get it done. You're on a deadline. And you said you stayed up and you did it. And they were like, how did it end? You're like, I don't even know. You'll have to read it. All I know is, and then you said, all I know is when I read it, it was fantastic. And you said, I'm not trying to be boastful. It's just, it was really good. And I don't know where it came from. That's exactly true. I, I think that, you know, when you say that these should be developed, I have a fear, I suppose, that if, if I touch these and, and try to change anything or grow anything or right. make more use of it, that it may vaporize and go away. Right. Well, and it might just be one of those things where you're just like, instead of trying to um, make it stronger, just control it by saying, hey, if you believe in guides, I don't know if you believe in guides or angels or, you know, whatever. But if you can just say, guys, just I need to have boundaries and I need to control this. But I also would like to develop it to where it doesn't really frighten me, but it helps me and maybe helps other people. And maybe that might be holding you back to help other people with your abilities. It's amazing when you do have them. I I guess I would describe it as I know people who have a garage full of motorcycles. Mm. And I had myself a uh, Suzuki Hayabusa, which is a 200 horsepower, 200 mile an hour bike. And I got pulled over for going 115 and I hadn't even made it up to top speed anywhere near yet. But that was next to a a Harley that had much less power, much less torque, but it was kind of a majestic slow, you know, I I could barely get it up to 70 miles an hour, but I just had a lot more fun riding that bike and it felt more like me. I think this capability is that Suzuki. If I, if I want to jump on it and go supersonic, I can but I just feel so much more me and at home on the, on the slow moving Harley. Right. No. And that makes total sense. And you know what? That's a great analogy. And so I think it's happening for you the way it should then. I think you're handling it the way it should be handled. And you know, maybe, it, maybe you're only supposed to get little spurts here and there uh, to either help yourself or know what's coming and, or when not to have it because it, you know, sometimes these abilities, I'm sure I don't really have abilities like that, but I can see why they'd be a little bit frightening. Well, one thing I, I was telling Jeff about was, you know, when it comes to this, uh, too much of those gifts can change your identity. You think of yourself differently. And, and identity is vitally important. We spoke about if in 20 years in the future, if we're all linked mentally to the Internet, do we become the Borg? And I told him, I don't think so, because I think identity is vitally, spiritually important. Absolutely. We all want to remain individuals. And I think that those gifts, those powers toy somewhat with identity. And I think of it this way. If I'm Clark Kent... If I start doing too much Superman stuff, I'm not Clark Kent anymore. I'm Superman. No, you're right. I think ego has a lot to do with it because another woman I interviewed, her son died and she was going through so much grief. She was a nurse. She was scientific. She did not believe in any of this stuff. Somehow this kid, her son, he was in his early 20s, came back. He just started talking to her and she was she thought she was losing her mind. And she finally started to accept it and said, how do I get over this grief? How do I stop hurting? How do I, you know, I want to touch you and, and hold your face between my, my hands. How am I going to ever get over this? And he said, mom, grief and love and happiness and sorrow and all those things, all the ego, it's all about what keeps the universe together. All of that keeps the universe going. You being human, you being a soul here is why we have this universe. 
It's all about love. It's a derivative of love. All of those things, anger, grief, all of those things. You know, Jeff touched on something about, do you charter your life or write it out in advance? And when I look at incidents like what happened to that woman losing her son young, Mm -hmm. I ask myself, is that something that was written in advance? And maybe experiencing that grief was important. It was one of the reasons that she incarnated. Right. Because here's that's the thing. I mean, that may be why if if this is true and if we decide our family, our soul families, or we decide what kind of life and if we're gonna be white or black or Indian or whatever you are, right? And you come down. But maybe, you know, you had to have someone die in your family, or maybe you had to have a father that abused you, or maybe you had to have uh you know, lose a child or whatever and experience that and they signed up for it and said okay i'll do it for you because i love you and i'm going to help you with this and then we'll all meet again up in the universe the real universe and have a party <laughs> you, know? you and i were talking about the process of writing and, and does one write a detailed outline and then follow it right i believe that chartering a life is somewhat like that outline but you make it general and then when you're here on earth, you're you're writing the sentences and the paragraphs and getting specific about it. And sometimes you follow the outline and, and other times you, you do something new. Right. So that kind of flanges into both chartering a life and free will. Absolutely. Good way to put it. I mean, it's just like a Hitler or a Dahmer. Did they come to do those things? I don't know. And to me, that's and people are like, oh, you're victim blaming. Those people didn't deserve it. And of course they didn't. But to me is when I when I write that general outline, I usually write it for the first half of the book or maybe two thirds if I'm really motivated. And as I get into the action, I just let it happen. Yeah. I think that if we think about Hitler, they probably he probably chartered up to the point that he had conquered all of Europe. Right. And, you know, I think people also derail. I I think sometimes they come and they don't plan those particular things and they get derailed. Why? I don't know. And how? I don't understand that either. But somehow they do. And just like the Dahmers or whoever else, Gacy, and whether they come down to do it on purpose or they come down and they derail, we all go back to source. That's just what we do. And people are like, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. None of it's fair. But we all go back. There's no hell. In my soul, I don't think there's a hell. I've always known there's never been a hell. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks as I've been driving across the country, and I decided to embark on a study of evil. Mm-hmm. Why is there evil in the world? Because right. that's one of the bigger questions. Absolutely. And I don't think we really know the answer. But one thing that somebody wrote was that people have a lot of chances to overcome an evil life. And if they are unrepentant and repeatedly evil over and over and over again, their souls are just dismantled and they cease to exist as a soul. And that could very well be too. I don't know, obviously, the answers, but I do understand that, like I said, some people volunteer to do bad things to help someone out. Now, I don't know about the horrible things Hitler did or the horrible things Dahmer did. That's that, that's a whole different level and all those things. But And we'll never know the answer. But it's interesting to me to know that, you know, 
a baby may just want to be in a womb for a little while and then and not be viable for a life here and just want to know what it was like to be inside a woman's womb and then go back and kind of report back. And that's a whole different podcast probably. But, you know, it's just so interesting because to me, this is that philosophy of kind of talking about it without really kind of coming to a conclusion because at the end of the day, though, in my mind, the other side, it's really all about love and intent. And, you know, and I, and I talked to another psychic on my podcast and we talked about the different levels of heaven. And I said, aren't there like levels of heaven? And and she goes, no, there are infinite levels of heaven. Like my dad was not the best dad. And my mom was, you know, a sweetheart. And I said, because I can kind of communicate with my mom. I don't know if you know that you probably don't. I didn't think I could. And finally, one day I started kind of getting some messages from her. And I asked her, hey, what do you do up there? And she says, oh, I'm a greeter. And I'm like, what? Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then I said, well, can you see, you know, can you see dad? And she's like, well, he's not where I am. I can if I want to. We have free will. We can do pretty much whatever we want. But he's not where I am. He's a different frequency. He's just on a lower frequency than I am. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I'd layer in over and above the love, the concept of meaning. And as an illustration of that, I think about when I was in a hospital for kids who had cancer. My son had a tumor and they were worried that it was life-threatening. And for about a week, I was hanging out in the children's ward where all these poor kids who had leukemia had no hair. And, Mm. you know, a lot of them had very low probability of survival. And I just noticed that these kids seem so much more soulful than your normal five-year-old or seven-year-old, there was something very special about these individuals, even the ones, and probably more especially the ones that were going to die. Yes. I got this deep sense of meaning from them, like they were here on them. They had a purpose. They had a mission. And they knew it was going to be short, but that was their that was their thing. And yet the mission was to have a short life, see what it felt like, all the things, and then report back. Well, I think part of that, too, is to demonstrate to their parents the value of human life. Absolutely. And, and you know, they're all so happy and joyful and lovely and just like older than most kids that would be their age, you know, more mature about it. And it, and it's it's remarkable to see that some of those kids and I know exactly what you're talking about. It was it was quite an experience, and there's just something very special about those kids that you can't explain. There's so much we can't explain, right. but we just chalk it up to the, the long list of mysteries. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit more about your books. I know we've talked kind of a little bit about it, but tell me what kind of got you writing. Were you ever a writer before any of this happened? I had probably 30 volumes of a diary that I wrote when I was at the Naval Academy. And oh, wow. And my friends would all make fun of me for doing nothing but writing. But I I said, I want to preserve what this is like and and how it feels. And of course, if I went on a date, I would describe that almost like a movie script. And it, it was very popular after, you know, Sunday featured readings from my diary to my friends. So I always thought of myself more as a writer who became an engineer than the other way around. When I decided to become a mechanical engineer, the English department was pissed. Oh. I mean, they came back to me and said, you can't do that. You've got to be an English major. Wow. So I persisted in mechanical engineering. But I remember the first day I reported aboard my submarine, and it was it was this incredible machine and just amazing people and so much drama there. And I thought, now, this was the second-line submarine. It was not the latest class. Right. 
So it was the second drawer sub. I thought to myself, I wonder if the way this boat is, could we take on Russia's finest in an underwater battle and survive? Or would they kill us or would we kill them? Right. Wow. That became the basis of my novel, Voyage of the Devilfish, the first one. And it featured a submarine that was commanded by a pretty courageous guy who was sent to the polar ice cap to take down a Russian frontline submarine and what happened to the two of them. Uh, I didn't plot out the book. I just let it flow and it ended in a stalemate. The two crews were facing each other in an Arctic shelter on the ice cap. That sounds really good, though. I mean, I have to say. (laughs) Well, I like that, you know, the, the latest book, Dark Transit. When the American submarine prevails against the Russian, the Russians get into an escape pod Mm. and make it to the surface. And they're rescued by the very Americans who sank them. And so that made for a very interesting conversation. And and I like that because, you know, the the bad guys weren't evil. They were just doing their job. You know, it's not personal. It's just business. And I think that has a lot to do with just life in general. It's a 3D as opposed to a 2D situation where, listen, we're just doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, yeah, I love the the concept of that. And I'm glad that you went on to write. And, you know, that's a whole other way that you're changing people's lives. Do you have them on audio at all? Uh, they're all on audiobooks. Yes. Very nice. That's, that's a hard thing. I have not done any audio for my books just because that's a whole other way and process. And I just haven't. Um, had the time to do it or taken the time to do it, to be honest with you. Well, I have a narrator named Joseph Cortmont who narrates all mine, and he's very good. Wow. So yeah. I'll put your touch with him. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But no, you have been so fascinating, and I love your story. And I, I tell you, when I heard you on Jeff Mara's podcast, I was like, I got to have him on because your perspective and what happened to you, like I said, is so much different than a lot of the stories I hear because there is a core even in yours, that you didn't want to come back and all that. But um, I don't think you went as far maybe as some of the other people, you know? That's right. Michael, you've been fantastic. And I'm going to put all of your information on my show notes. Uh, And if any of my listeners want to buy one of your books or all of them, all they have to do is one click and they can uh, enjoy all the books you have. I think you have 11. That's amazing. Yes, yes, very definitely. Well, thank you, Leslie, for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one-woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again, and I will see you next week.